Hello. Oh there. Hello. How are you? Doing fine. <sighs> Me too. Tired. Always tired. I want to open up by thanking you for something. If I may. You may. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, you'll allow it. <laughs> um, your tip to turn on uh whatever it's called, high contrast on Apple TV changed my game. Yeah, I'm surprised I don't hear more about this. Uh what we're talking about is uh the Apple TV interface. Uh there is the concept of a currently selected item. So if you were to hit the main <laughs> button on the remote, something would happen. Like, you know, like there is this got a five way up <laughs> down left, just right, wiggle, John. Center. Just wiggle. Right. <laughs> right. So there's a button, but the whole point is, okay, well, when I hit, if I hit that button, what does it do? It's like, well, it acts on whatever is selected. And the main question then is, okay, what on this screen is selected? And the way the Apple TV by default indicates what is selected is that the, the currently selected item is slightly bigger than the other item. So if, you, if you're familiar with the Apple TV main screen interface. Very, very yeah. slightly. It's like it's a bunch of rounded rectangles, more or less 16 by 9 TV shaped rectangles, right? And it's just a big grid of them. And one of them, guess which one? One of them is a little bit bigger. Mm-hmm. And I guess that kind of makes it seem like it's in front of the other ones, right? Uh, but I find that difficult to tell. And they have this thing where if you if you uh, mess with the touchpad a little bit, the one that is selected will slant and kind of reflect the light in a 3D kind of way. So you can tell which one it is. And I've never liked that because... You know, the, the standard for knowing which item is currently selected on computers has been for many years to highlight it in some way, maybe to outline it, maybe to do something that visually indicates if you were just to look at a screenshot uh, very quickly, your eye jumps to, oh, that's the one that's selected. Um, and so the setting we're talking about, I still don't know where it is. It's somewhere in accessibility is high contrast selection. I put it, I, I, I thanked you for this also on today's Back to Work. I can find it for notes. It's, I think it's, it's like four levels deep. I think it's something like settings, accessibility. Vision um, or something. Yeah, here we go. It's called, and uh, I mean, I understand why they call it this for its on-label reason, but screen contrast, I almost want to say, God, it should have, get, have a better name. Because um, like so many accessibility things, this really benefits a lot of people who don't, quote unquote, have to use it for accessibility. Although I, I get that. In settings on t- Apple TV, you go to accessibility, increase contrast, and then focus style, and then choose high contrast. Yeah, a lot of accessibility options I tend to not partake in because if I don't really, really need them, because they tend to make it look not as aesthetically pleasing, let's say. Like they're, you know, very focused on whatever it is they're trying to adjust, readability or size or whatever and like in general the interfaces are designed to look a certain way and if you start changing that it can kind of look jarring or a little a little bit ugly even widely supported stuff like changing the the size of fonts or type in 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 the interface is treated or the consequence anyway it's treated differently or the consequence is different in in different places it's like the famously difficult localization of german where you've got to fit some very long large words into small spaces but the, but it add, I love that it adds like some padding to it and then like well, an yeah, outline. That's what I was going to say about this setting. This is the exception. This one very buried setting that is specifically about increasing the, the quote unquote contrast of selection. The only thing it changes as far as I can tell is how it indicates a selection. And what it does instead of the default make it a little bit bigger thing is, is it puts a very nice looking white outline around the current selection. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, unlike, for example, if you do increased contrast on macOS, I find it it kind of makes the interface not as nice looking because it just changes everything everywhere. This is a very the one on the Apple TV is a very targeted, very specific changes. The only thing it does, and the alternate look I think is nice, so nice mm-hmm. in fact that I think it could and probably should be the default. Yeah, I, it's one of those. Things, you know what it reminds me of a little bit is. Um, all during COVID, of course, we've done lots of stuff with deliveries for groceries and for food. And I, I feel like this must have been a, a corn innovation was click here for contact free delivery. And it's one of those things where like, I, I can't, ima- well, in, in retrospect now, I can't imagine not having contact free delivery. Um, if you've said, okay, it's fine to leave this in front of my door. But further to that, I 10 times can't imagine ever going back and saying, you know what? I would love contact in my delivery again. That should be that. I mean, I don't know if it should be the default because people have their, you know, there's all kinds of reasons that people would want to like pick up the food, pick up the package. Like maybe you have a poisoner for a neighbor, but I, I, I agree. Um, I agree that it, I can't imagine turning this off because who would it, who would it benefit if this were the default, who would it benefit? Is there, are there people that would benefit aesthetically from turning it off? Do they just not want that contrast? I mean, it is, does look a little bit more elegant without it there, I suppose. <laughs> Although, speaking of the contactless delivery, like, we've obviously been getting food delivered a lot, too. Uh, in fact, we never really got food delivered in, until COVID. Well, maybe a little bit before COVID, we started on it. Usually, we'd go and, like, pick up the takeout somewhere. Mm-hmm. We'd drive there and get it. But maybe it just started a little bit before COVID. We started doing takeout more. Um, and I had the experience in the in the pre-COVID times of, people would come and deliver the food and I would try to give them money like a cash tip because I'm the child of a boomer. Uh, <laughs> and they would, and they would refuse because like you tip in the app, right? It's like, I'm already giving like a, a big tip in the, and also paying a, an additional delivery fee, like in the, well, whatever. those, those, uh, those uh, quote unquote fees are getting real high. Yeah. But, but, but anyway, I would do that. But then I'm like, well, I don't know the etiquette. Maybe you're also supposed to give the poor person who actually delivers it some money and they would refuse cash. Oh, I always do. I, I'm a 20 percenter um, on sometimes with groceries, I'll do 15. But I, I know what you mean. And there's some places where I think they're told expressly. I mean, it might be a test. You know, I think you're not supposed to get yeah, or, or maybe they don't want to run around with a bunch of cash. Like, yeah, I, sure, I kind of sure, understand. Sure. So eventually I stopped offering it. So I just do I, I do a horrendously large tip in the interface and I pay whatever their delivery fee is. I don't even look at it anymore. And, you know, and, and then so I, what I'm getting is I don't need to have an interaction with them. And of course, in the COVID times, the, the contact list, I think, I mean, I I think there's no downsides. You mentioned having a neighbor that's a poisoner. I don't think that's <laughs> a a possibility because the way the contact list works here with the places we go to is they come, they put the bag, uh, the giant bag of food in front of your door. They ring your doorbell and then they back up many, many feet. Mm-hmm. And wait for wait, you wait for to, the wave for you to yeah to to acknowledge to uh, basically to I mean we have little windows by the side door but say you didn't have windows by the side door they basically wait for you to open the door pick up the the bag and bring it inside it's contactless and you didn't have to have any contact with them but it's not like they're dropping the food and running away they are waiting to see that you you know that make sure some the person who I'm delivering this to physically takes possession yeah. of the food and then okay thank you bye and they're on their way I think that's the perfect system no one needs to like. You know, you you know, you don't feel like you need to have any kind of small talk or pleasantries or get in someone's face or whatever. It's it's very fast. Everyone know, understands what's going on. The doorbell rings. You don't even have to like run to get there in two seconds because you're afraid the person will leave. They, you know, they just put the food down, step back twenty paces, and they're about to get back in their car and drive away. You pick up the food, and you wave, and you go. It's a perfect system. We never need to change it. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't see myself turning that off. 
I, I, I can't decide if this is ever like considered controversial because, well, I don't know. I mean, as we like to say on Dubai Friday, accessibility helps everyone. There's nobody who doesn't need a ramp at some point in, in life. And I don't think it's weird to prefer a ramp, uh, for example, especially if you're on a Segway, let's be honest. I'm just looking through on my phone real quick. I won't belabor this, but I do think this is an interesting topic. Um, I'm just looking in my accessibility section for stuff I've done. And I know, I suspect that there are some of these that you would despise um, that that I have turned on, but there's so many things in accessibility, things that are nominally or formally accessibility things that, that are incredibly powerful and useful. And two off the dome, there's the double, double click, triple click on the back of the phone, which I have set to double click is, um, I think I have double click. I don't want to just check right now. Um, so double click takes me to the home screen. Triple click puts me into app switching mode. Now, I understand that, like, and you can do, I don't know if folks know this, but you can associate that with a shortcut. I mean, you can, you, there's all kinds of stuff buried in accessibility that you could do. You double click on the back of your modern, uh, probably a, a, like a, uh, at least a 12, maybe an 11. You double click and you can do this thing, triple click. Some people like that for uh, screen grabs. Um, that's one that I've got and I love. For screen grabs, wow. As if we need another way to accidentally take screenshots. <laughs> it's, it's just, a, just to it's, be clear, Marlon yeah. keeps saying double click and triple click. What he means is, tapping the back of your phone two or three times the accelerometer yes. sense that you've tapped it with your finger so you're not actually hitting one of any of the buttons it's just a, a vibration yeah for me thing. it's my left index finger and you're right it's it's I, I should have said that but it's a running joke in our house that like the two things we're we're all constantly doing that nobody ever means to do is a screen grab when you're trying to for example restart your phone or do whatever my, my daughter and i famously both have so many images of when we were trying to do something else and we got a screen grab. The other one that's biggest for me, I sometimes feel like the voice in the wilderness. I don't know whose idea it was to put that little start recording my voice dingus in messages. I've, I know some people do like that. I've never <laughs> wanted that ever. I've never, I mean, maybe twice ever. It's basically like I messages stickers where it's mm-hmm. like a fun thing you do a couple times and, you know, but like I, I never want that. I get, there's so many times where I think I've just, I'm just dismissing my screen and then I hear boop, boop because it thinks that it won't. Do you, do you have the little app bar showing on messages all the time? I don't know. App bar. Oh no, no, I wish. I, I, I don't think so. I mean, well, ever since they moved the photos thing out of there, I still find it confusing. Right. So uh, the, they moved the photo things out of there, which is, which was terrible, but, uh, Oh, I guess I see. You're, the thing is in the message field. I guess you can't know what. I always hide that app bar because when I do want to use photos, I bring it oh, up I see. to yeah, get it, yeah, but yeah. then I keep it hidden. But yeah, I guess you're accidentally hitting. My main uh, thing that I accidentally do on my phone, it's not accident. It's just sort of part of the design. You know how like the, the iOS keyboard does these things where it sort of expands the tap area for the next key it thinks you're going to hit. So if you type in E, the region around the R is huge because, you know, E is very often followed by R in English and it does all mm-hmm. those things, right? Yeah. Um, my one, the, the one that kills me though is when I'm in mobile Safari on my phone and I'm going into the address bar slash search field and I want to do a Google search for something on my phone, mm-hmm. it is basically impossible for me to write words separated by spaces. Pick any phrase you want, like LED recess light bulb. What will come out in the address bar is led.recess.light.bulb or dot light. like it's oh, it oh, always you, hits period. 
I because see. period is next to the space bar, and it thinks if you're in the address bar, chances are real good that you probably wanted to type a period because you're probably typing a host name. So even though you actually hit the space bar, we're not going to type a space. And it's unbelievable. No matter how much I know this is going to happen, it's like, you know, Murphy's Law, even when you account for Murphy's Law, you know, the worst thing. Anyway, yeah. no matter how much I know, don't hit the, the period, hit the space bar. It is impossible for me not to type spaces. I'm, I, I, I'm not to type dots. I'm pretty sure there is no place on my screen that I can tap that will produce a space <laughs> at various points in me typing these things. What if that's, do you think it's different from person to person? I don't know. The good thing is that Google mostly doesn't care if you write LED dot, uh, you know, recess dot light bulbs. It basically <laughs> says, yeah, you probably meant LED recess light bulbs and it does that search for you. Yeah. Although speaking of tapping on the back of your phone, you're mentioning this. I just want to close this loop because I put the link in the thing and I'll put it in the notes for the episode uh that brings to mind uh um, you're probably probably not how, how much have you been keeping up with the uh nes tetris scene the mm, highly competitive nes Mm-mm. tetris i didn't scene. know you, i didn't know you really been up on that anyway Mm-mm. um the nintendo entertainment system like the original one with the little thing with the little d-pad and the a and b button you know that the original nintendo right yeah yeah um there are there is a community of people who competitively play tetris for that system still to this day Right. Or on like a ROM? No, on, on, yeah, sometimes. But oh, also but you on, can get it. You can hardware. get it for Switch, probably, right? No, no, like on the NES. Okay. Like on the on the actual NES, they have actual NESs, and they can play competitively against each other, or just compete for the highest possible score. And anyway, right? And I think they do use emulators as well. But that's what they're playing. They're playing the real NES version. And you would think, after all these years, however many years it's been, uh, you know, there's there's nothing left to do. Like we've we've got we reached the pinnacle of what we can do in tetris on the nes um but that's not true because what people are always trying to do is hit buttons faster than previously humanly possible like you know like on the very high levels the pieces fall so fast <laughs> that you have you know uh, fractions of a second to to do like seven different inputs to do like right 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 left 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 rotate you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and it's physically hard for humans to to be able to like, for example, get a piece from the center of the board to the edge before it hits the bottom on the higher levels. And so there are various techniques for pressing the button very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was called hyper tapping. There are other ones that involve like timing the the input polling of the uh, the game programming and everything. And very recently, I think within the last year or so, maybe even sooner than that, a new technique has been discovered and is sweeping through the competitive Tetris community, and it is essentially what you're doing on your phone, which is tapping the back of the controller with your fingers. It's like you don't, instead of pressing the button on the top, you roll your fingers like you're doing like, like I'll do a Foley worker. I totally can't hear it because I'm not. No, I see what you're saying though. You in this, um, I'm just seeing the thumbnail from YouTube. So it looks like you keep your, your thumb or finger is very near the button on top, but by tapping on the bottom, you're bringing the uh, the controller to your finger. Right. And because when you tap on the bottom, you can tap with all four of your fingers, one right after the other, brum, 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 like that. You know what I mean? So you can do four oh, wow. quick inputs instead of like if you're a drummer and you're trying to do da, 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 whereas if you had four fingers drumming on the drum, you go, it's a lot easier to go faster. So mm-hmm. That's called rolling. And so now uh, I think you're slowly becoming a competitive Tetris player with your uh, iPhone techniques. I didn't even realize it. That's it's nice to get new skills in life. Yeah, this could this could be a big this could be a big source of retirement income for you holding an NES controller it. against the heel of your sock covered foot while you roll your fingers in the back of it. Hmm. Yeah, I see that in the in the image. Are you too um, you're too young probably for track and field? 
Um, no, no, I know. I know the whole deal with that. Yep, same deal. So you remember the pencil? Pencil trick? I do not know the pencil trick. I know the trick of holding one hand with the other, one, uh, your hand with the other hand, and then making your finger vibrate really, really fast and pressing down on the button. Oh, I don't know that one. There was one, I don't know if this is even true or good, but I have not thought about this in, I don't even know, certainly 20, maybe 30 years. But um, you'd bring a pencil with you to the arcade, and if memory serves, there were buttons for running. There were two buttons, you know, and you go. One, at, like one end to the other end? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and But if you put a pencil in between, <laughs> if you put a pencil over them, you could use that to, to go faster, was what people said anyway. Yeah, it was, it was similar on the NES, which is what I'm more familiar with, which, you know, press the whatever button was to run very, very quickly. And it was the same type of thing. How quickly can you make your finger vibrate up and down? It's not really healthy for your body to do what we tried to do to beat that game. One that I went back to, last one of these on uh, on um, iOS, one that I went back to recently, and this is the one I have to imagine you would probably really object to, is um, I've turned on button shapes and on-off labels. And I I like stuff that's a button looking a little, I know this is a very Scott Forstall way of life, but I, I really like that anything that's text on the screen that I can click on gets an underline. It's, you know, like Yahoo 98 all over again. And I, I it's not pretty, but it's eminently more usable to me. I, it, it, not least because I think, just as a heuristic, I feel like my brain can scan faster, you know, just looking for what's underlined. And there's all kinds of stuff where like, like even in, like in the Roomba app, there's all kinds of like different affordances, different places, different sizes. And like I was trying to explain something to Roderick the other day about Roomba. And anyway, I noticed that the button that says, has a, says map in text and then has a little map place finder next to it. And I, I feel like I find stuff or get to stuff a lot faster when it's underlined. I would just say to anybody out there, if you haven't done it in a while, it's worth going back into accessibility settings for whatever it is you use, because I will bet you there's going to be at least one thing in there that functionally and or aesthetically improves the experience. Stuff like reducing transparency, you know, in some cases you can turn off, uh, you can reduce motion except for stuff like, you know, text, uh, you know, text explosion things. I don't know. I just, I love some of that stuff. I can't, I can't get with keeping my text size large all the time just because it does nothing against anybody who would, but not every interface interface accommodates that well, but uh, go check it out. Go, go check out accessibility. There's a lot of good stuff in all of the places. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace. You can learn more about Squarespace right now by visiting squarespace.com slash diffs. Friends, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build your online presence and to run your business. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, Squarespace has got you covered. Squarespace combines cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your home online to make your ideas a reality. Squarespace has everything you need to create a beautiful and modern website. You start out with a professionally designed template, and then you use easy drag-and-drop tools to make it your own. You can customize the look and feel, the settings, the products you have on sale, all this and more with just a few clicks. It really is that simple. All Squarespace websites are optimized for mobile, so your content automatically adjusts so that it will look great on any device or dingus. You'll also get free unlimited hosting. Jeez top-of-the-line security, and dependable resources to help you succeed. There is nothing to patch or upgrade ever. They have award-winning 24 by 7 customer support if you need any help. 
and they'll even let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. Plus, you'll have everything you need for SEO and email marketing to get your ideas out there. What are you going to use this for? Well, the question is, what can't you use it for? You're Mainly, you're going to turn your big idea into a new website. You can showcase your work with their incredible portfolio designs, publish your next blog post, promote your business, can announce an upcoming event. I mean, you know, if you will it, it is no dream. Uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Squarespace. I have been using them for years. I continue to use them. It's where we host the Roderick on the Line uh, podcast, and uh, and uh, it's it's where I host my personal sites because it's just so gosh dang easy to use. And I really, I recommend it to friends. I recommend it to people I, I like or don't like because honestly, I don't want to be in the webmaster business, especially with people I don't like. They can just use that. So please go right now. You head out to squarespace.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. That's going to get you a free trial. No credit card required. And when you are ready to launch, listen closely. Use our very special offer code diffs, D-I-F-F-S. That's going to save you 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain, squarespace.com slash diffs. When you decide to sign up, use our offer code diffs. Again, 10% off your first purchase, and it will show your support. For John Craig Syracusa. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. I just sent you a message with this uh, graphic that I used in one of my old Mac OS X reviews. Uh, <laughs> Nevin Mergen did a did a graphic of how much of how much of a button how buttony should your buttons be? Oh, to be to be properly buttoned. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and I see it's a continuum of ice or like even like a like a yeah, a continuum or a matrix of like from the least button to the most button. Yeah, use this handy chart to pick the button that looks like a button to you. Mm-hmm. So where are you on Mo- this Most chart? of them in terms of like w- the, the minimum viable button title. Yeah, what's the first one that looks like a button to you? I mean, it's hard to tell out of context, but we're looking at a grid here, four wide, three high, starting with a the word, so button being just text in probably CCC, all the way up to button with bevels and it's got ribbons. Uh, well, yes, but it's also, but I mean, like along the way, like almost all of these, except for three, are a button, a physical looking button from a pretty, you know, pretty basic one all the way up to like Kai's Power Tools looking stuff, as you say, with rivets on it. I mean, I can't say, say out of context. I mean, number one, just the CCC text would probably be good in a lot of contexts, but probably the first one with the button on it is the first one that out of context, I could say this is a button. Well, with an outline, that's why you put on button shapes because you want your button to have an outline, to have yeah. clearly delimited borders, to not just be a word floating in a void defined by like white space around it. Well, I mean, there's so much we've gotten used to over time, with especially with iOS, um, and I guess increasingly with other kinds of things. But like, I, I again, this is just a hunch along the lines of my why I like the words to be underlined, but my hunch is that, and maybe this is an old guy thing, I don't know, but my hunch is that that this reduces the cognitive load, a cognitive load you may not even be super aware of, you know, it's, you know, it's weird. Like if you're, if you're a book person, uh, like you're familiar with stuff like the, you know, the heuristics for book selection, if you're a bookie person which is like you can read the title and see the image usually on the title. You can read the back. You can read the flaps. You can read about the author and what else they've made. Um, you go on a little further and you've got the front and back matter where you've got stuff like an index, a table of contents, all that kind of stuff. I, just, I remember hearing a long time ago, if you're, 
if you're thinking about getting a book and you aren't sure, like look at the table of contents. Like one one uh, trick list fat cats don't want you to know. If the chapter titles are silly and you think they're too silly for the topic of the book, that's good to know. But there should be some percentage of stuff that looks somewhat familiar in most nonfiction books, some stuff that looks uh, familiar, and then at least a few things that don't look familiar. But like that's all in some ways like metadata. Metadata, people say, well, you know, we, well, we, get, we didn't get their phone recordings, but we got the metadata. Well, metadata says a lot, you know? And once you've read books that have a good index, you really crave a good index. There's just all kinds of ways you can accelerate your confidence with tackling a given book by knowing that you have tools in place, standard tools for finding your way around. Or like, you know, I mean, on the map, every part of the map, north is always the same north for your wayfinding. Um, you know what I mean? There's, there, this is, uh, it's not nom, this is bowling. You know, there are rules. And I think, I think with this kind of stuff, it, it, I do feel like there's a lower cognitive load to me having to scan for certain kinds of things if it's, if it's clearly labeled. And it doesn't have to be ugly, but it does, also doesn't have to be cute. Yeah, like I, I think what's, what's often missing from our modern age where, uh, like part, part of the point of this Nevin Morgan thing with the buttons, and it reminds me of a graphic from the old Apple human interface guidelines mm-hmm. of saying like, we don't have to be so prescriptive. What was the guy's this name was, Tog? Was that his name? Yeah, we don't, we, don't, we don't have to be so prescriptive about exactly what everything looks like. Uh, and the example used in the book was uh, this old people who remember this, but uh, uh, in classic macOS, there were things called extensions and the icon for extensions, system extensions. The icon user system extensions were like puzzle pieces, which is yeah. a nice concept for an icon because they were kind of like the, the puzzle pieces. Control panels and extensions seemed related but they had a very different visual design language right control panels look had their icon was like a little control panel with a slider on it but extensions were puzzle pieces but the Mm -hmm. thing about extension the extension puzzle piece icon is that uh there were a couple different kinds of puzzle pieces just like regular puzzle pieces sometimes they had the little like four little uh bulges on the side sometimes you had a notch in a bulge i'm sure puzzle makers know the i know there's there's got to be names for all of these i'll find yeah but anyway um the point of this part of the human interface guideline was like look even though these aren't all literally the same puzzle piece, they're clearly identifiable as puzzle pieces. And once you know, oh, extensions have icons that look like puzzle pieces, no one is confused by the fact that, hey, wait a second, these two puzzle pieces are different because no one would probably even notice that. They would, just, they would just see in front of them, oh, they're both puzzle piece icons, therefore they're both extensions, right? That was in the very early days where they were saying, it's okay to trust the user a little bit to not have to say, like, what if they get confused that we don't literally use pixel for pixel the exact <laughs> same puzzle piece icon, right? Yeah. Fast forward, I don't know, 7,000 years. I'm, I'm stopped trying to guess years because I'm tired of dropping decades. It makes me feel bad about myself. I know, me um, too. Fast forward a very long time to the present day, and now we're at the point where they're like, you don't have to visually indicate whether something's a button. People will figure it out eventually by blindly tapping all over the screen. There's no sense in hand-holding them. And I, and I think we've lost sight of sort of mm-hmm. one of the success criteria for an interface. It used to be like the main success criteria for an interface was, if I put this interface in front of a person, can they successfully use it for the intended purpose? And well, successful can, can they meaning... Even get, can they even get a lay of the land for what this thing does and how it wants you to interact with it? Right. Like, And, and success means not like they eventually stumble through after making hundreds of mistakes. You would measure how often do they make mistakes? How often do they guess wrong about what is or isn't a button? How long does it take them to figure out that they can accomplish a task and then accomplish it? So you'd time them. You'd count their errors. That's how mm-hmm. you measured the quality of an interface back in the day. That was in the, the very prescriptive times of like, well, we've got to make sure everything is very consistent down to the pixel, right? And so we've come, come from such a long way from that. 
giving people more artistic, artistic freedom to do interfaces and, you know, culturally coming to understand the conventions of the various interfaces that we use. So we don't have, so we can afford some amount of variation, but I think we've gone too far. At least Apple has gone too far in the other direction of saying, mm-hmm. there's no sense in even making this parsable. Let's just make it look beautiful in a screenshot. People will eventually figure it out. Right. And I feel like they need to get it back to a little bit of saying, can we measure? I know you don't want to do this sciencey stuff. I know it just wants to be like, oh, designers feel like it's nice, but like maybe measure, you know, all the accessibility options like increasing contrast and stuff. Like, who is this incredibly low contrast text serving? What mm-hmm. is that actually in the fat part of the bell curve of our customers? Or does it turn out that, you know, 99% of our customers would benefit from higher contrast text? If you insist that it's the designer's good taste to do that, well, could the same designer with different, very good taste make that? easier to deal with. And that actually is a perfect way to end because it takes us straight back to the Apple TV, which is that I'm I'm certain there must be a name for this that I've known and forgotten in UX and UI. But but if you've ever tried to show somebody like a kid or a parent or whomever, somebody who's maybe not quite as, you know, familiar with something, if you're trying to show that to somebody else, and I'm going to be honest, I'm just going to say the words, in my case, especially with my mom, is that there's a lot of timidity I think it's understandable. I don't want to do this wrong. I don't want to hit the wrong thing. And I don't think that is just silly or old, an old person thing. Because in the case of what you've been describing with putting an outline around those buttons, there is, there's a risk to not only just doing it wrong. If you're, if you're, if you're, um, if you're, if you're, you're, you could lose your spot in what you're watching because you grab the wrong side of the remote and then like, we don't on Apple TV, we don't need another way to not know where we are and what we're doing. We already have a button that can mean two different things. And as y'all mentioned, and by the way, that was from ATP where I heard you talk about that. As y'all talked about, as everybody's talking about, they, you know, you get some of my settings, you don't get all of my settings. You don't remember that I never want to use that top right button for Apple TV. I always want to use that for go to the home screen, right? That didn't get synced, stuff like that. I guess what I'm saying is like there's no, I don't think there's any particular cool points to be gained. From saying that you understand an interface or an interface is easy for you when somebody else doesn't even know whether they understand the interface. If you don't know what it is that you can do and you feel like there are stakes to getting it wrong, that's not a fun feeling. And that does make you, there. it adds timidity to, to an interaction that should feel very robust. Uh, like you probably, I've never felt less timid using a TV interface than on a Peanut TiVo. Because you know what every shape means, what every what everything does. And you know, like within a week of using a TiVo, you know how to go boop, boop, boop. And like you don't have to think yeah. about it. You don't have to wonder if you hit the right part on the diving board. I was thinking about that the other way. The other thing that the classic blue, you know, TiVo interface had going for it was that the the sort of uh the, the interface paradigm, the physical, the the physical analogy of uh, you know, up and down is your options and then going into them goes to the right and going back goes to the left. That very simple paradigm. Almost, like, also almost was, like gopher or wap. Uh, yeah. Or, and it was also present on the original iPhone. If you measure those apps, like scrolling lists and you, and you tap on one and you go to the right and then you go back and you go to the left. It's a very limiting metaphor, but it's also eminently parsable on the original TiVo interface stuck to that interface metaphor almost all the time. And so, like you said, you've got a physical thing that you can, I, you know, I always know how to go left, round, left, right, up and down, and I know how to select, right? And every time I select, I go into the right, and every time I back out, I go back to the left. 
it, it just becomes so tractable. Once you, you, it takes you two seconds to learn that. And then you're like, this entire interface is an open book to me. Like, I may not know where something is, but I feel confident searching around for it because the number of verbs I can use is, is very limited. And I understand what each one of them is going to do. And there's a physical button that's shaped differently than everything else that does them. Um, yeah, it was, it was much easier. And then like, I think about, you know, the, the classic Apple, this is like after jobs was kicked out, but before he returned, one of the important, uh, bits of, uh, you know, strategy that the company had was based on the understanding that user interface, the quality of a user interface was something that you could measure scientifically, that there were tests that you could perform Mm. to say, is this a good interface or a bad one? If I make this change, is it better than it was before? Or is it worse? Scientifically, like user testing of saying, here's your task. Your task is I don't know, copy a file, print a document, you know, in, in, in the web usability days. Yeah, I mean, this is all classic, classic UX testing, like card right. sorting, wayfinding, all the kinds of things where you say to somebody, here's a pile of five cards, what order should these be in? And like, it's there's n- very few things in life more humbling than watching the interface you think is so beautiful be disassembled by somebody right. who knows what they want more than you do. And and there's more to an interface than just that, but the innovation in the, the Apple of like the late 80s, early 90s was they were totally bought on on the idea that this scientific method of measuring the quality of an interface can help you make interfaces that are better that you know that users <laughs> find easier to use that users are more successful at that makes your that makes them like your products better right and after jobs it was much more about like well i'll just have these great artists do it and they know better than everybody else and he didn't like focus groups and didn't like testing and, th- and there has to be a balance between these things if you go too far in the scientific testing you get google you know focus group testing 31 shades of blue, whatever that story is. Right. But if you go too far in the other direction, you just mm-hmm. have your designers make something that looks beautiful that nobody can use. And so I, there is a balance between those two. And Apple has not yet regained the correct balance. I think they still ship a lot of interfaces that look a lot nicer than they work. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I wish they would <laughs> see also of... Kai's power tools where that was basically like a, like a puzzle game. Yeah. Well, I, I think even Kai's power tools, like, you know, Kai's an example that Jobs would say. They were or or would, there was one that was like, didn't really have much of anything in terms of labels. You just hit stuff and let's see what happens. Right. Well, but see, I think that's the idea of like, oh, if you have a great artist who designs it, they're just, you know, they, they have a vision for it and it is what it is. But the thing about Kai's interfaces is that a lot of them were actually pretty successful what they were trying to do because it you know these these weren't just apps they were also kind of like little miniature games yeah i mean if you knew you just wanted to make a horizontal and vertical grid you could do that in illustrator in this case you want you want some serendipity do i hit these combinations of these three different buttons and i get something i never could have planned yeah and there was an internal consistency like it looked weird but once Mm -hmm. you figured out the controls they made some kind of sense and very often extremely complicated concepts were conveyed by having a beautifully rendered beautiful sort of 3d rendered thing like like that sphere with the four-way arrows on it very easily let you know oh i understand now if i click on this thing and move my mouse i know what it's telling me that it will do because they've rendered in exquisite detail this control it's not just like an outline right and so the high production value of the artwork actually conveyed additional information that would not be present if it didn't look like uh, you know this 3d mm-hmm. render type of thing not the saying those are the greatest interface in the world because sometimes they just did things that were wacky but mm-hmm. um you know th- th- that's the other end of the spectrum but i, I don't want i don't want a defibrillator or a cockpit that's overly editorial in design 
And I'm I just a very low contrast text telling you how to use the defibrillator. Exactly. You'll you'll figure it out. Just just search your way around. So it's also, designed I, in Apple by California in light gray uh, five point <laughs> text on a white background. <laughs> I also added to notes a really good episode, like all the episodes of Ninety Nine Percent Invisible. Uh, that gets it doesn't seem like it would be about this, but it is, and it's called In the Unlikely Event, and it's basically uh, uh, basically how those weird back of the airplane seat cards for what to do in terms of, you know, if there's an emergency, how those get um, designed and uh, all the ways you would like, like for me, I would always laugh and go, why is that little boy look like a hobbit? Like why, why isn't everybody freaking out? And like, there's a reason for all of that. They, they did test a lot of this stuff and all of the stuff that's in there is there for a reason. It needs to be something you don't have to read. It needs to be available in all these different languages. And it's just, to me, one of those great examples of extremely functional design. It may not be the prettiest thing in the world. It's, it's kind of silly looking. If you fly a lot, you're like, oh, God, this thing. But, like, they needed to be able to, like, make, make it easy for people to understand. You know, the reason, the reason they put those slides on is because they want people to bounce out of the plane rather than try to go down steps. And they need a way to convey that really quickly. So this is uh, in the unlikely event. I still think about this stuff, John. I think it's interesting stuff. Yeah, I think they uh, they did a send up of that in Fight Club, right? The whole uh, looking at the faces of the people. Follow the link in notes, and you'll see that Flight Club, Fight Club airline safety card is the, the YouTube uh, link after the first paragraph. No, I, you're not. You're not putting them in a document. You're in a whole different place. You're, I don't put them in whole, the doc, John. John, what do I do? You're John, in a whole every separate time, latitude. John, John, never create a reminder for something that can be its own reminder. And never make a note about something that's its own note. So that's why I say in here, John, do you see, do you see, I don't have line numbers in here. Production notes, episode is up in draft. Okay to add links. And I do that every week. Have you noticed that? I understand. But and then the, you continue the putting really them into system, the... The really login system. Is, oh, and like that's I my problem. Do... How? Oh, I put it in the right problem. place. It's because see, you know, see where I put my links? See how easy it is to get to them? I make you, I buy you these nice shoes with arches. I make you these nice lunches. And, and this is how you repay me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Where is the? I'm on the page now. Where is the Fight Club one? Oh, it's right there in the unlikely event. Are you looking at? It? Are you on the internet? Yeah, I'm on. I'm on the internet. You see uh, episode four two two in the unlikely event. Mm-hmm. Stand right at it. Do you remember air, airplane travel? Ended that paragraph. Oh, I, it's a YouTube am video. Am I having a neurological YouTube event? In bed, I see it. Okay. You didn't recognize the image from Fight Club? Have you seen I the movie Fight Club? I thought it was the image of the card. I was looking for an image. Let me explain something to you, John. Stuff. A lot of people don't understand Fight Club. They misunderstand mm-hmm, it. A lot of people mm-hmm. misinterpret it. It's true. They do. Mm-hmm. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Burrow. You can learn more about Burrow right now by visiting burrow.com slash diffs. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash Hey, listen, being able to move without fuss is important to a lot of people. I, I can't imagine someone to whom that is not important. But, but, you know, you're a lot of people, so am I. Especially when changing jobs, moving the cities, or just embracing working remotely by moving around. Being able to pack up and go easily, it's basically a superpower. But what's holding most people back? Ooh, moving heavy furniture, glue, taking it apart. No, thank you. Putting it back together again, I just took this thing apart. Well, if you're a longtime listener of this show, you already heard about a furniture brand that might as well be made for moving. That's Burrow. Burrow sofas are easy to assemble and easy to move. This is true. I've assembled and moved them. Their innovative modular design and super helpful instructions make assembling and disassembling your furniture quick and hassle-free. So when it's time to move your Burrow furniture, it's not going to be the thing that holds you back. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Burra stuff. It's designed for the way that you live. Their award-winning Nomad sofa has a built-in USB charger so you can take conference calls from the couch or just keep scrolling Twitter. Uh, all right. And their all-new range collection of seating features wider seats and deeper cushions and a contemporary Scandinavian look. Ooh, super easy to shop Burro too. You can spare yourself the warehouse trips and just go shop online. Everything's designed to work perfectly together in your living space. So all you got to do is add to cart. Plus, Burrow's world-class support team is always available for whatever you need. And, uh, of course, you get fast, free shipping on every order. And, and let's not overlook that. As they say on political Twitter, don't sleep on that. Free shipping's a pretty big deal. And that'll save you an average of $100 on large items like a couch, like your Burrow couch. It's a pretty good gig. Um, I've told this story before, but it's a true story. I'm going to tell it again. Um, my lady friend and I uh, have basically... I think we were searching for a new couch before we even met. It takes that long. It might take you 20 years because they're expensive and they're big and you got to go to the showrooms and have the coffee from a styrofoam cup. I guess it's been a while since I've been there, but, but, uh, but I found out that my lady friend actually had Burrow on her short list. Long story short, before they were a sponsor, not using, uh, you know, a code, you know, like, like, like D-I-F-F-S, you know, uh, without a code, I, I bought this on my own and I love it. I love it to death that I set on it every night. Probably too much if I'm being honest. Here's the thing right now, you can get $75 off your first order. Just go to burrow.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. B-U-R-R-O-W.com slash diffs. $75 off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash diffs. Our thanks to Burrow for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Okay, we're back. Um, hi, everybody. This is uh, Reconcilable Differences with uh, your, your beloved John Syracuse and his little monkey. And uh, thanks for being here. This is a show that you can uh, choose to help support by going to relay.fm slash rd. And this is one of our uh, bonus content weeks. You know, so if you, if, you, uh, if, you, if you sign up for our program, you're going to get an ad-free version, although we do love our advertisers. An ad-free version when the show comes out, and uh, at least once a month, usually about once a month, every other episode, you get some bonus content where John and I uh, do our challenge. John, what's the challenge going to be for this week? Uh, our topic for the after show this week mm -hmm. is ostensibly camera stuff. I know we've talked about camera stuff before. We'll probably have similar conversations than we had before. Camera stuff is an on, is, is it a project? I don't know. It's an ongoing thing mm -hmm. in both of our lives. So I think it will be an update on John and Merlin's camera situation. I also, because this is the kind of thing John likes to do to me, I want to allow enough time. We should probably keep the main episode a little bit trim. I want to allow time to ask you a very important question that is kind of about cameras, but it's really about something else. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a question I think about a lot and I think will be interesting to our listeners. And uh, I'm going to ask you that in the after show, whether you like it or not. I'm ready. Oh, actually, before we go on to our main topic yes. today, one more thing. This will be brief if you have nothing to say, but uh, maybe you have something to say. Uh, do you have any follow-up on our video game discussion uh, from the previous episode? Has That's anything happened question. on that front? No, no. I do make sure that I keep the uh, remotes charged. Uh, I now have ARC or eARC or something, eARC, so now I can get PlayStation Sound uh, through the Homes pod um, easily. I don't have anything new because I don't like video games. I'm still going to play. Now, as far as my kid... Oh, somebody recommended one that sounded good. It's a game that's a, uh, and I forgive me, I don't have it in front of me because I, you never tell me what to prepare. It you're takes like that. two, that one? That's a, that's a Rob Bass song, Memory Serves. 
Yeah, but it's a game somebody suggested that, that's a, a two-player and only two-player game. That's probably it, huh? Yeah, I haven't played it, but I've heard of it. Yeah. No, nothing new for me. And um, <sighs> my kid's been taking lots of walks lately. She's having a little less screen time. Taking lots of walks. No, we'll, we'll come back to it. I just, you know. All right. I, yeah, no, for, if, yeah, if I appreciate you asking. She's yeah. into games, you know, and she drags you into one. I want to hear about it. Mm-hmm. She likes TikTok, really. Yeah, well. Mm-hmm. She drags you into that. I suppose I want to hear about that too. I think we have a topic this week, and by I say I think we have a topic this week. Uh, I don't know if it's much of a topic, but it interests me. We're going to talk about uh, theme dining nights. Do you mean when you go to a restaurant that's themed? Uh, do after I like? Uh, do I do that? <laughs> what do you mean by <laughs> theme dining nights? What do you mean? What do I mean? You know what I mean. I know you what mean, you mean. You have to explain to our listeners. That's how this works. Oh, I see. You're throwing to me. Is what you're doing. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. You, you you do that. Okay. Um, people have heard me, uh, talk about, uh, you've heard me talk about this on other podcasts, perhaps if you're a, a, a friend of the, I don't know what's called the Merlin verse, uh, podcast. I, I like to say Merliniverse because it sounds more ridiculous. So you can say MPU, the Merlin podcast universe. Oh, I like that one. I like that one. Is it my family? Um, I don't know. This has probably been around for a long time. Maybe it goes back in some ways. Every family has themed dining nights, I think, or I speculate. It's just that we're different. Because I think we have more, maybe have more themed dining nights than others. So what is a themed dining night? It's where you put a little bit of thought into what you're doing. It's all, in all of my cases, except for one, it involves cooking at home. Um, we have one themed dining night that is, involves getting delivery. But um, I don't know. It's like, you know, think about the classic, let's have breakfast for dinner kind of thing. Or like you could say it's pizza night, so we're making pizza. It's just that, I don't know, We this is one of those weird family things that has just accreted over time. I never meant to have themed dining nights in my life, but now I've got like close to a dozen. And um, the, the main thing for, to know about me and my themed dining nights is it means that you can say, tonight is going to be XYZ night, and everybody knows what that means. Pizza night is probably not a bad example, although I suspect for most people, if you're not Gus Mueller, that means you're ordering pizza. So what makes something a theme and not just this is what we're having for dinner? Like if someone says, what are we having for dinner? And I say we're having pizza. How is that different from saying tonight is pizza night? Well, um, for example, like, for example, if, if we're going to, if my mom, well, I was about to give an example, but it's not, that's not even a good example. Like if it's pizza night and you're ordering pizza, well, that's pizza night. But like, that's not really theme dining. It's not really organized around a concept uh whereas if i say it's sausage night everybody knows what i mean and sausage night does not mean it's just sausage it's a whole thing as i like to say if i say it's potato night everybody knows what potato night is right if i say let me look at some of my other ones um but it's it's, it's, you know what if you tell me this is just a me thing we can we can we can drop it and talk about video games sausage night red steak night Potato night, all sides night, spatchcock night. And then there's some that just have more of a name of like charcuterie. And it's just an unusual, like it's not going to be, it's not going to be the usual scene. Now, now, now me, I grew up at a time where you got a protein, you got a starch, you got a vegetable. The, you know, the, the, and the starch, you know, you get like a rice or, 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 or a spaghetti or something like that. And then you have like a, you know, frozen peas or whatever. And that's like a typical meal, but it's not, the, I, mean, I don't think it's super exciting today. You could say it's hot dog night, and in our house, hot dog night would have a meaning, 
because hot dog is in the class for theme dining. It's in the class of build your own meals. Like taco night for me does not just mean we get tacos. Taco night in this parlance means we're going to build tacos, whatever it is you want, all the fixings. Like whatever it is you want to do for your taco, you get to make your own special version of this. That's one reason I love pho. Is like with pho, it's a different meal every time. You know what I mean? Like Heraclitus said, you never step into the same pho twice. And so you don't, do you have anything like this? Do you have anything like, like, you know what sausage night is, for example, right? Yeah, I do. Okay, I'll come back to that. But do you have anything like that in your house? Do you have like a theme dining night? I mean, uh, do you I have mean, any think, of these? I think what you opened with is the thing that is probably the most widely relatable, which is breakfast for dinner. Um, I think that yeah. is very widespread. And I'm not sure people would think of it as a theme dining night, but it fits the bill because if you say that, you don't really have to say anything more because it's something that people are familiar with and they know what they're in for. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't even you didn't even say, well, does that mean pancakes? Does that mean waffles? Does that mean eggs? Does it breakfast? Does it mean, breakfast does it mean cereal? Like it probably means eggy breakfast. But instead of breakfast, you're going to have it uh, for your supper. But that's that's the theme. The theme is breakfast for dinner. And the reason that's a theme is because it's unexpected. And it is an I feel like it is a a broadly encompassing. It's a theme. It's not a specific thing. It mm-hmm. is an overarching, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, umbrella term that encompasses a world of possibilities, but is confined within the idea of breakfast. Pizza night is a little bit tricky because it's like, well, that just means you're having pizza, right? Exactly. Yeah. But in your thing with like things like sausage night, does that just mean I'm having sausage? Well, no, it means something very specific in your house. When you say sausage knife, everyone knows what they're in for. It's the original theme dining in my household. Because it is established that is that there is a specific thing you're going to be making and you've essentially branded it as sausage night. So I think a lot of your theme dining is uh, shortcut oh. branding of having like a, shortcut a, branding. a, a small a short term that lets you not have to explain laboriously all the interest. Like you said, taco night, having saying taco night versus if someone says, what do you have for dinner? And you say tacos, you don't know what that's going to be. But if you say taco night, ah, suddenly everybody knows that's probably the thing right. we're going to make it, our own. Well, and there are things to this. So let me explain quickly. I've said this before. Uh, I'll share this again. My friend Tony used to make something. My house, my dear friend and housemate in college, Tony, used to make something that he called Sausage Night. I got the name from him. And um, he and his family are from the Philippines. And I'm not sure if that's relevant. Uh, his dad had been a cook in the Navy. His mom was a really good cook, but really good, like, you know, home-style food. And I mean, I, this has changed so much since I took over the mantle of sausage night. It's changed so many times, but the most basic version is, you know, Hillshire Farms, kielbasa, um, you know, like loosely, not loosely, but not finely chopped, coarsely chopped cabbage. And then you usually get some, uh, some tanginess and some saltiness, which usually is soy sauce and something like vinegar of some kind. That's changed a lot over time. The vinegar part has changed a lot where now I'm, I use a little bit of balsamic instead of a bunch of red wine or white white wine. But I mean, it's got aspects of like, it's, it's kind of German. It's kind of a little bit Asian. And that's a beloved treat in our house. It's basically kielbasa and cabbage, well, garlic and onion if you want, et cetera. And you have that over white rice. And it's a beloved meal in our house. And I think Marco tried it once. It's uh, It doesn't need to be fancy. Uh, I made but it. It's, Remember, I sent you pictures of me making it. Oh, you did send that. You did that. It's it's real tasty. But that, I mean, that to me is the er uh, branded dining night. Now, something like potato night. The fun of potato night is that and there's a lot. There's a there's things like this to almost all of these. There's a like usually there's a trick 
somewhere in it that was once that once arose as a way to get my daughter to eat food. Yeah, the, the theme, theme nights and naming something, you know, uh, you know, blank night definitely has the ring of selling something to a child. I right? get that. I totally like, get that. Yeah. As the as the fun activity thing. And I think I don't think theme dining nights are common, but I think under a different name, the the same concept exists. And that is essentially shorthand for meals that you have very often. It's like, so let's say someone your sausage night thing, rather than calling it sausage night, families will end up having a a short name that once you say that name, everyone knows everything that's going to happen in that dinner because it's kind of mm-hmm. a package deal. And those vary yes. from person to person and household to household. You have to have those. Uh, otherwise, you end up uh, like a talking menu. You're like, well, we're going to have chicken thighs, <laughs> rice, and broccoli. If that doesn't have a name because it's not Chipley a meal. Steakhouse is unrivaled for cuisine and ambiance. Yeah, you, you, have to, you have to name all the ingredients. Whereas if you just say, uh, you know, whatever it is, like, you know, well, to give, like think uh, about spaghetti. If you say to somebody it's spaghetti night, I bet you in most households, without regard to the particular type of pasta that's being used, the exact gauge of pasta, I would bet you most of the people, I don't have an opinion on this, but if you say it's spaghetti night, I bet nobody, there are very few people in the household who are asked, oh, is it going to be Alfredo? Is it going to be puttanesca? Or is it going to be marinara, et cetera, right? It's almost like, I, I'm first of all, A, for most people, it's going to be red sauce on noodles. And for other people, if they're, if you prefer Malfresco on ziti, which is a very small town in England, if you, if that's going to be it, everybody already knows that. But, but like to call it whatever something night or this dish, everybody knows that's code. Like you say, it's a branded code for everybody knowing what this thing is. I think it also applies a little bit more to things that are not casserole-ish, but that essentially it's an entire meal mm. in one thing. Sausage night is like that because I guess mm-hmm. with the rice is the exception, but it's kind no, no, of no, one thing. No, 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 you're absolutely thing, right. It's right? not like separate dishes. It's not going to be like Marco, <laughs> Marco with his beloved sides for oysters. Yeah, you're not, you're not going to have your uh, small plates. Mm. Is this your first time dining here? <laughs> and to give an example, there's a lot of these things in families. We used to make something. We haven't made this in ages, and I don't, I don't know why we got off it. Maybe we got off it as part of getting off our ground beef thing, but... uh one of the meals that my wife brought to the marriage. This is another thing. This is another thing that I think that happens in marriages is each spouse brings like their family meals to the marriage, right? And so like some meals are mm-hmm. my meals and some meals are my wife's meals. Anyway, one she brought uh, is something that her mother would make for her brother. And the name of the meal is Steve's Dish. Steve is her brother. Oh my God. So we're having Steve's Dish. That is the <gasps> shorthand for, oh, I know what we're making. And it's this, you know, it's not casserole, but it's all in one thing that has rice, tomatoes, ground beef, Steve's dish. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the type of shorthand that if you had to repeatedly describe this thing, it wouldn't make any sense. For your spaghetti example, in our family, uh, this is one of the things that I brought to the marriage. Not that it's that complicated, but my entire life growing up, uh, we had this meal pretty much once a week. And we more or less do that continuing now. Uh, what are we having tonight? We're having pasta. This is the single word phrase that everyone knows what we're hmm. going to have is some kind of pasta, our own homemade tomato sauce, meatballs and sausage. Hmm. It's I mean, it's always the same thing. They're in the freezer right now. If we can't think of what to make, I can say, well, I'll just pull, take out a pasta thing and it will defrost. And then tomorrow we'll have pasta. And we don't specify what shape the noodle is going to be. It's like whatever shape we're in the mood for that. But everyone knows what else is going with that. It's going the sauce that we have, either freshly made or frozen from previous frosty man batch and that sauce is going to have meatballs in it and sausage and it's mm. always the same and it's a one word phrase as opposed to saying oh 
we're going to have rigatoni with tomato sauce and meatballs, beef meatballs. With like, we don't we don't describe it to that level. You just say pasta, or you just say Steve's dish, or you just say potato night, I suppose. Um, and so it's not so much a theme as I think the fa- what I'm saying is I think the family shorthand is is pervasive and has to be mm-hmm. because you know people do have meals that they want and they want them to be a certain way and that you end up just repeatedly having them. I think the idea of fancying it up as I think you have with okay it's not just a branded meal but it is a an event you know a little bit of an event right not kind of I, I mean I wouldn't make it wouldn't become a theme night that gets made often enough if uh if it weren't something that everybody found something to like yeah and that's what makes them special it's like you should be excited by whatever night because you know there are dozens of them so you're not having them every single week right and a lot of them have some special event like even breakfast for dinner can be like it's not the thing you have normally so that when you do have it it's actually a little bit interesting and exciting especially for kids and everyone likes breakfast if you had breakfast for dinner every single night it wouldn't be interesting but i can't the last time we had breakfast for dinner was probably like a month ago and it was exciting This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Instabug. You can learn more about Instabug right now by visiting try.instabug.com slash diffs. That's kind of a sentence. That's pretty cool. Listen, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know. Building mobile apps, it presents some challenges. A challenge for me is I don't know how to make them, but but a lot of you do. So you should be checking out, uh, you should try Instabug, okay? Bugs, crashes, performance issues, it's a nightmare for developers. But what if you could not only detect all these issues, but understand the quality of your app from your user's point of view? That sounds like a pretty good deal. Instabug's lightweight SDK grabs all the insights you need to build quality apps through comprehensive bug and crash reports, performance monitoring, and real-time user feedback. That's all just in one SDK. Boom. Bob's your uncle. With Instabug, you can continuously monitor and measure the performance of your app as perceived by your users can engage with your users by letting them report issues and questions right from inside your app. And you can get all the information you need about bugs, crashes, and other issues. You can fix those issues in record time, all with a focus on privacy and security. Love that. And you don't got to worry about the hassle of switching to a new tool. What? It only takes a minute. And you can integrate Instabug into your app and it fits right within your workflow. It has support for Jira, Slack, Trello, GitHub, Zendesk, Whatever you use to handle your issues. I wish I had something to handle my issues. Am I right? Anyways, what I want you to do is I want you to join over 25,000 top mobile developers, or or as Mike Hurley would say, mobile, (laughs) around the world, who use Instabug to ship high-quality apps. So here's what you do. You you get on your computer and you go to the internet. You go to try.instabug.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. Try.instabug.com slash diffs. Our thanks to Instabug for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. I'm trying to find, I don't know why I'm bothering to look for this. It surely must be gone or something different now. So you went to college in Atlanta, correct? Who, me? Yeah. No. Wait, what? Didn't you go to some Georgia school? No, my wife did for oh. graduate school. Point is, <clears throat> I was visiting there. Uh, it would be in the early to mid nineties, visiting some friends there, probably 93, 94, 95. And, um, uh, we went to little five points and there was this restaurant there. I want to, it's, it's a restaurant, but 
it's, it's, it was weird. And it was basically my dream restaurant. Because it was kind of like a college cafeteria. And it was this place you go into and you could get a sandwich made. But it wasn't, you know, like a Fireman Jimmy Jack's or whatever. You would go in there and say, on this kind of bread, I want this kind of meat. With this kind of... Like you ordered like the sandwich that you wanted. Kind of like if you went to Publix. You order, you can get, they probably have like generic-ish sandwiches, but like a lot of halfway decent sandwich places, you said exactly what you wanted and how you wanted it. That was cool, but pretty typical. The thing that really put me over the moon, there was a couple, like several different stations. The station that really caught my attention though was this sort of pasta-related station where you'd go, you get to pick the kind of pasta you want. You get to pick the kind of sauce you want. You get the, if you want a protein, you get to pick the kind of protein you want. And then, of course, unlike like as a as with like a pizza place, then you get to like do your own aftermarket add-ons. And I was like, why isn't there a place like this everywhere? Like to me, this should be. I mean, I know like a gastropub, blah blah, bistro, whatever. But like, I would a place like that. I would go all the time because why do I love pho? I love pho because, like I said, it's a different meal each time. If I want just slightly more or less, uh, like chopped up pepper in it, or if I want more or fewer noodles, if I want to change my mix of the different kinds of proteins that, is, that have been provided to me, I get that option. I get to, I love things where I get to like, it sounds slightly disordered, but I just, I think it's fun where you get to make the meal the way you want it. And the idea of a place that was not very expensive, where you could just roll in there with, with a tray and walk away with exactly the pasta, exactly the way you want it. Like that's ideal to me. And that is an aspect to a lot of these themed dining things. And yes, partly to like trick my kid into eating. Potato night's really basic. You start with a big potato and you put what you want on it. And guess what? Dad is also going to slide in a protein on the side. It's just that it is, I can sell it. This is something I can sell. I can sell potato night because everybody likes potatoes. Does everybody like the same potato? No, no, everybody wants something different. My kid for sure does not want sour cream on there. She does want all of the bacon bits, like a, a punishing level of bacon bits embarrassing. Like she will receive an admonishment from her mom because she's basically, she's got a pile of bacon bits that might have a potato under it. But that's the point. The point is you get to make it how you want. And so for some of these, I've gotten a little creative, even with sausage night, I've been wanting to stretch, um, spread my wings a little bit with sausage night. I try to do something a little bit different and better each time. And I've now taking to just taking the amount I start with, splitting it into two different pans, making my kid a really plain version that is, you know, mostly just, it's, you know, oil, soy sauce and the tiniest bit of balsamic. But then for my wife and I, I can make something a little more fun. You know what I'm saying? But then, and if you want it, how about this? Maybe you want a little bit of that one and a little bit of that one. It's not a buffet. It's not a smorgasbord. But many of these dishes or theme nights become a way to make a meal your own. And to make it something everybody enjoys, it's just the thing that everybody enjoys is slightly different depending on what they prefer. I have an important question for you about the place in Georgia, because it's very potentially upsetting to me. When you specify the kind of pasta and the sauce or whatever, how does the pasta come to <laughs> come into existence? Do they cook it for you while you I wait? I don't remember. You're, I think what you're asking me is, do they do it Sbarro style? Or are there, are, are am I to understand you there are these bucket, buckets of already cooked pasta <laughs> With that those conical scooping. sieves? <laughs> 
I'm it's saying like this is not a thing. Like pasta does not lend itself to that because you can't ah, pre sure cook pasta. You, you have put to put it in the sieve and dip it in the hot water. No, and Bob's your uncle. That's so bad. Are you Please. asking me if they heat up the aluminum foil pie tin oh. that they put it into? I don't think they. I don't think they. I don't even know if they sauce it properly. Please, please, never. And saucing is not what saucing is not what a lot of people think it is. It hurts. When you're saucing, it hurts my heart. That's I could probably do five, I could do 20 minutes over five, uh, five, 20 minutes a week for five weeks on this, where what you need to do, you take the pasta and the saucing, eh, eh, that's not the same thing. You're going to put sauce on there, A, and then B, however you did it, that's wrong. And then I'll keep <laughs> explaining that to you. It's definitely wrong to take this terrible already cooked pasta and put like... When you say it's already cooked, what if you, as I say, it's al dente, it's par It needs to be cooked to order and well, serve immediately when it's done. And I that's mean, why what you should never... Anyway, what does it need? It's... it's it needs. Anyway, um, the, you're saying, why aren't there more stores like this? Um, what you're describing, aside from the horrible, terrible, sinful treatment of pasta, is essentially a New York deli. Like, you'd go into a deli yeah. and you could mm. basically ask for literally anything that they can make with the ingredients on the hand and they have every ingredient. Oh, and they don't they don't bitch about it? That's the whole point of the deli. You go in and you tell them mm. exactly what you want. At least when I was growing up, like, you know, when, when I was working at the parks department, I talked about this before, you'd go and Best get- Best job you uh, ever had, right in yeah, the golf go court. and get, quote unquote, breakfast sandwiches. And breakfast sandwich, like, look, the deli can do everything. They can make scrambled eggs. They make you can make fried eggs. They got, they got all the different kinds of sandwich loaves. They got the long ones. They got the round ones. They got the bulky buns. They've got- Bulky uh, buns. <laughs> exactly. Bulky rolls. You got bulky buns. Yes, exactly. They got rye bread. They got white bread. They have mm-hmm. every kind of cold cut you could want. They have hot salads, cold salads, like, you know, pasta salads, like cold pasta salads. They have, you know, like cream cheese, uh, tuna salad, egg salad, you know, chicken salad. They've got everything there. And they don't roll their eyes and act put off because you ask for things in a certain and, way. But that's what they, when you go in and, the, and, and make your order, you are listing ingredients. John, I wouldn't be saying it over and over if I felt like I if I thought that that was an easy thing to ask at lots of restaurants, I wouldn't be asking it. Right. I, I think the, the the trend now is to not be like that and not to have someone come in and have this long no. sheet of paper and saying, uh, you just put the roll, word sand dabs uh, and scra- number 35 uh, sc- you know, on there. Scrambled yeah. egg potatoes, salt, pepper, ketchup. Uh, and then the next one to be three eggs, uh, green peppers, uh, chilies, ketchup, right, on rye. Like, they don't want you to, like, invent your own sandwich every time. What they want is to have seven items in the menu named after celebrities called, like, the Ray Romano. And that's the sandwich that you want. It has 8,000 different ingredients on it. And then you have to say, the Ray that's Romano, but can, you re- <laughs> but can you replace the avocado uh-huh, uh-huh. with, uh, with uh, you know, pickled peppers and remove the cheese? And you end up doing all these sort of delta modifications instead of saying, look, here's what I want. <laughs> rye bread, I provolone cheese, ham, mustard. Yeah, the, the kind of salami. place where they hand you a, a, a cheap, a little a cut up piece of paper with a bunch of check boxes on it, and and you you say right. no, not no, not even you'd you'd come in with like a literal list of you you would uh, like exactly like you said you would say here's I how I want you to assemble my sandwich. And you'd go from the outside in. You'd say the bread, you'd say the condiments, you say the fillings, yeah. oh, and they I would love just that. there's someone love there's that. some teenager behind the counter going mm hmm mm hmm mm hmm mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they hand that piece of paper off to the next person. The next person goes and makes it your sandwich. And then someone wraps up wax paper and puts it. And it's just like an assembly line. And they're just like, I love that. I love that. Eventually, I've talked about this before on other podcasts. Eventually, you start learning the shorthand code. Like, you know, the short order chefs have their own code for things to say more quicker. Yeah. Adam and Eve on a raft and wreck it. Yeah. And so so we'd have a single letter codes for the things you want on your sandwich. So it'd be like, uh, Scram SPK rye is scrambled egg, salt, pepper, ketchup, rye bread. 
and you could fit that in a single line and you just hand wow. them a piece of paper and they would just if, if you had if you knew the codes you wouldn't have to sit there and recite them all they would just go take the pep the paper and then hand it off to the person and you'd get <laughs> 15 up, up, sandwiches down, down left right spk yeah, you'd get 15 sandwiches exactly how everybody wanted them that you'd put in your pickup truck and drive back to the parks department and hand out to all the people. Oh, I love it. I love that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the appeal to me. I love I love the making it your own way. Uh, there's a, I don't know if there's a lot of these, but there's a, a series, I think I probably watched all of them, a series of uh, videos on Bon Appetit that I might have mentioned here um, called, have you seen Trying... Trying everything on the menu. Yep, we talked about it on the show before. Yeah. Okay. The one, the one with um, Claire, where they go, they get breakfast at uh, Balthazar. Oh my god! I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, we talked about this. I talked about how I hate traveling, but this makes me want to go to New York and get breakfast at uh, at this uh, Balthazar. Oh my god! Oh yeah. my god! I want it so much. Yeah, I, I do wonder, like I mentioned, like they always have the Ray Romano now and they don't have thing like the New York Deli still exists where you can just go in and rattle off that stuff. And a bu- bunch of people with the hard hats on come in at 6 a.m. and just have this giant list of orders for everybody back at the work site oh, and, sure. and leave yeah. with a giant cardboard box filled with, you know, hundreds of tiny containers of coffee that I'm sure is the worst coffee in the entire world. Plus mm-hmm. tiny little things of orange juice, plus all these completely custom, completely <laughs> custom sandwiches wrapped in like white waxy paper with like code written on the back of them so everybody knows where's mine and they have, you have to know the code to find yours because it's not like they put your name on the sandwich. I hope that still exists somewhere in New York. If it doesn't, I'm Oh, upset. I do too. Um, I, can, uh, I, can, I can close the, the thread on this uh, mostly pretty soon. So what do I got? Sausage night. Oh, so red steak night is just kind of a conceit of like if I make something like a, like a big piece of protein that gets sliced up or apportioned up. Um, and that's what's red, usually what's good. red about it? Oh, when my daughter was little, she would she would call it red steak. So <laughs> All right. we call it red steak. Uh, oh, you know, there's ones that are like then they have ones that are just dishes, right? There's ones like meaty rice where I make uh, boxed wild rice and add uh, some like uh, our house does eat ground beef, and it could be a ground beef thing. All sides night is a classic. I mean, I think one that is going if it's not already big is gonna be big is like everything but turkey from Thanksgiving. It's so fun. I mean, obviously, you can just make a turkey breast, and it's the best. But, like, all sides can be so fun. Uh, charcuterie, we just have cut up, you know, cheese, different crackers, spreads, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, spatchcock, where my daughter's, my, excuse me, my wife spatchcocks a chicken. That's not really exactly an event. And then a couple things I want to mention. There is one... It involves <clears throat> delivery. And we don't do this too often because it's a little extravagant. But we have a night called Spin the Choice based on the popular Peggy Hill game. Do you remember Spin the Choice from I'm, King of I'm the Hill? I'm familiar. <sighs> your thing is you mute and I can't hear what you think about things because you got to unmute and blow your nose and do all your stuff. Spin the, <laughs> spin the Choice is where... Sorry for having a human body. I know it's been the choice. Ears yes. And you're sweating your hairs. Continue. Spin the Choice is where uh, everybody can get whatever they want from uh, ordering delivery sometimes we'll just do spin the choice where it's like man i really want this or i want that or like i'm so like different ah. people get from different places yeah you're on board with this because i feel like there's a delivery time issue with that oh don't think i haven't thought of it i always order mine last hmm mm-hmm. what's, the, what's the strategy there well if my if my kid is because of course as i try to explain to my family especially my daughter there's so many things in the world that i don't control that i can't control so, you know, if there's something that we ordered, 
if, if her, you know, uh, Ricky Montgomery shirt didn't arrive, it's not my fault. Like, I don't control the delivery. So I've stopped making promises about when things get from anywhere else in the world to our house. With that said, I will always order my kids first. Like, if she really wants, she often really wants, sometimes my wife and I just aren't in the mood for sushi or Japanese writ large, but she is. She's got a standard order. It's easy to reorder. And I'll order that, wait 20 minutes, and then order mine or ours. But spin the choice, like I say. This is going to be the, the most one of the most insufferable things you'll be able to do when, you, when you're out to dinner uh, with your daughter when she is 40 years old. Oh, and I agree to have something delivered to the table where we're eating. No, and, 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 uh, and you decide you're going to, going to be a uh, magnanimous host slash chauvinist in order for the table after you knowing what they want. Oh, and people you can love say, that. Uh, and my daughter will have the sushi, blah, blah, blah. And then say at the end, it's for a kid. Mm, always got to say it. Because I, I bet she loves that. You know, at the end of every order you make for her for the rest of her life, you should say it's for it's for a kid. It's not a question of whether she likes it or not. It's a question of whether it's what she want, what she asked for. <laughs> you understand? And, and, and you know, I, I'm not out here putting myself out as some kind of a paragon of anything. But I, you know, if you screw up the order, I'm going to go outside and take off all my clothes, throw a garbage can through the window and set the place on fire. It's for a kid. You always got to say it's for a kid. And, it, and it, it'll be true, technically, I suppose, forever, because she'll always be your kid. You have so. so many, you have so many, so many apocalyptic warnings about about everybody else's decisions. Well, I'm not warning. I'm saying you to should you. totally do this. I'm, I'm do in that. favor of this. I'm the best. We have one. Then I have some other high concept experiments. Okay, so charcuterie, spatchcocks, been the choice. Oh yeah, one that I'm experimenting with. I've only done this once, but I'm very intrigued by this idea. This might be my boldest experiment. It's called 130 degree Fahrenheit night. Hmm. I think and there's a sous vide thing going on. It's a here, sous vide huh? thing. It's it's there are 130 degrees. I, I should have a funny joke for this. You you should try to make a Fahrenheit 451 joke out of this night. You got to workshop oh, this a little bit. I can work on that. That's why they that's why they call me Mr. Fahrenheit. It, what is what is that in in Kelvin or Celsius? Can we get close to 451? <laughs> Six. Oh, I see what you're saying. It's it's the the burning point of Ray Bradbury. Um. So. That's an unusual number. That's a special number because 130 is in a funny spot where that's, it's pretty much perfect for at least three foods that I like to make, which is beef um, and sausage and uh, what was the other one? Uh, oh, certain kinds of fish. 130 is just about perfect for those. And like I say, it, it's, it's, one of, it's partly the idea is to get to where we could do one of those, let's clean out the freezer. Because like whenever, whenever we get something to be frozen, a protein, by which I mean meat, we, I always seal it up in a food saver bag because why wouldn't I? Like, don't never put styrofoam in your freezer. It's a fool's errand. Um, I will bag all those up into the right portion size. And sometimes it's like, oh, we got, I forgot about we have this really good halibut. That'd be fun to make. Oh, I forgot we've got this Italian, this mild Italian, Italian sausage. We got that. We've got these, we've got this like flank steak or whatever. And it's, I have this fantasy. It's like a one pot meal except with water. I would love to be able to throw everything into the sous vide at 1.30. And I've only done it once, and it turned out fine. But I feel like, I feel like there's, there's a future in this. The 130-degree Fahrenheit night. Fahrenheit? No, too cute. Yeah, I, I think that works as long as everyone has something that they like that fits into that temperature range. Uh, uh, yeah, and you know, this is a good place to, 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 to leave this, at least for me, probably, is that so I was trying to think of like, because you know me, right? I'm trying to come up with like my pitch on why I think this is fun. It really helps with things like food planning. Obviously, it helps with things like communication. Like when you're texting with your family, is okay if I make uh, you know sausage night tonight? 
uh, but it does help with meal planning. Like even if we're just making a dish, like stew, like Instant Pot stew, we have a chicken, we have a Kenji Lopez Alt uh, chicken stew that's like got to be the easiest recipe in the entire world. It's basically, it's like four ingredients. It's like chicken and other things. And it's like, takes 20 minutes. Um, or like I do beef stew. I do a really a couple different beef stews. All of this though, it helps with meal planning. And meal planning seems like not a big deal until you get into it. And once you do get into it, it adds so much order to life. Like you can always choose not to make what you'd plan to make tonight, but it's nice to know you do have a plan to throw out. Very Eisenhower kind of approach. Uh, like in your case with your frozen, uh, your, 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 uh, your red sauce, your gravy, as you say, like, it's nice to have that plan. Um, and like I say, the other thing about this is like several of these, at least half of these involve some aspect of do it yourself or tweak this yourself. And I think that makes it fun for people like building your own tacos fun. And it's fun for me. If I were by myself, I'd still enjoy it. Cause if I have three tacos, I could have tacos three different ways. Maybe I, I do want beans on this one. Maybe I, I want, want not beans, but avocado on this one. I could change my acid, like put some lime on this one. Maybe make this one a little bit hotter. I don't know. I think that's fun. I think it makes dining more. I mean, we're already just going to sit in front of the, you know, it's always sunny and just stare at the screen. In this case, it adds a, a note of fun to it. I have a question related to the meal things. I'm not sure if this has come up before, although maybe you touched on it once or twice. How do you factor in, if at all, leftovers into your meal planning and also as it relates to themed dining nights not much because we have extremely limited storage and okay i, was, I will speak for myself my wife has different ideas about this but she's wrong uh, my wife loves saving leftovers i wish she liked eating them as much as she likes saving them we do not have a lot of i have a freezer at work now that's good for you know storing stuff that we're gonna cook I don't like having stuff in the refrigerator that no one's going to eat. And so like, even if we save, my wife just made this amazing baked salmon night before last, uh, roasted, roasted salmon. It was really, really good. And of course, because she had one little arrowhead of it left over, God love her. She put it in a bag and it's sitting in there now with some of the other things that are just sitting in there. We have all these little like sad sample packs of food that nobody eats. So how do I think about leftovers? Uh, I overtly do not think of them unless that's the idea. So there's certain kinds of things where I'm going to make two meals, two, two, three person meals worth of this. Sometimes there's something like meaty rice where like, that's really easy to read. I will eat meaty rice all day long. I'll cook an egg and put it on there. It's the best. Uh, I do not think a lot about that just because of our space limitations and because it pains me to put food, seafood go in the refrigerator. I know no one's going to eat. I'd rather waste it. I'll waste it. <laughs> we we factor in leftovers as like a foundation of our meal planning. Like our meal planning them? does do not really work for that. Well, yeah, and and not just the stuff we cook ourselves. Obviously, we've already talked about the sauce where we make just. You the might most, be a retiree, John. The, the, the most amount of sauce we could possibly make because you do it like once a month and then freeze it in you know meal sized batches. But even for for normal stuff, anytime we make a meal, especially if it's a meal that I like, we're always aiming for. At least essentially two full family meals out of any cooking, sometimes three. Even when we get takeout because we can't control ourselves, we get way too much food from takeout. Oh, I'm a notorious And then we can literally have, quote unquote, the same takeout. The entire family of four have three full meals of that takeout before it's gone. doesn't Mm -hmm. mean we do that. It just means like, oh, you eat the takeout and then you have tremendous amount of leftovers. And then maybe for lunch the next day, two people have it, right? And then you have something different for dinner. And then the next day... 
maybe you know three people have it for dinner like leftovers factor in so much because it lets us not have to shop and cook on a day when kids have lots of activities or people's schedules are tight you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. save the time for like oh here's a day when we're not doing a bunch of stuff where we actually do have time to cook and so every time we cook we're trying to to think about how can we get the most mileage out of these you know hour and a half we spend in the kitchen and the answer Mm -hmm. to that is make sure you don't just make enough to eat at this one meal make sure you make enough so that somebody some multiple of people can have leftovers even if it's not literally what we have for dinner because who wants the same dinner two nights in a row people can take it to lunch with them when we used to go to work or you know my wife still does go to work or have it for lunch at home or Mm -hmm. one person can have it for dinner and then the two other people can have something different because we want to make a meal that one person in the family doesn't like and so that person can just have the leftover from the last night that they did like it's so foundational and yes we don't have the space constraints we have a giant refrigerator taking up half of our kitchen uh, plus a huge freezer downstairs are the doors even? Are, are the doors even at the top, Sean? They are. I, I check on them periodically. Um, they, <laughs> I, I don't get a lot. Of, I, I, the reason I check on them is because I have a bunch of plastic washers to adjust uh, because the adjustment screw didn't, you know, didn't do the adjustments. Oh, and, okay. And the washers are slowly sort of rubbing up against each other and shedding like plastic dust. And so I'm thinking Ugh. this this erosion should eventually cause the uh, the doors to be out of alignment. But thus far, they haven't drifted. Good for you. Yeah. My only thought on leftovers, if I had a thought, is, um, I mean, obviously, this is not advice. If you like leftovers, have leftovers. I think for leftovers to be successful, at least for me, there has to be the two Ps. There has to be a package and a plan. Like, I think the idea of putting leftovers into whatever and hoping it will be eaten, I mean, that might be true in, like, in the house in Caddyshack. But I think in most like normal people's houses, man, I could be wrong. In our house, let me put it this way: in our house, that's 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 a fail to fail to plan, plan to fail kind of thing. If it's just sitting in some weird saran wrap with other stuff that's in weird saran wrap, and there's no plan for when someone's going to eat it, and just to be clear, that, that answer could be ten minutes after you finish dinner. I don't care. I try to make an I try to make the right amount of food that I don't waste any, and but you know you don't always get it right. But even with like like leftovers. I, personally, if I look in the refrigerator and the o- open middle area that we have available is one-fourth Chinese takeout containers, I that is very unwelcoming to me. I have no desire to eat that. I don't feel like fishing through those gelatinous boxes of goo. Oh, like, that's the best. Oh, no, it's not. I mean, it's terrible. This, is, this is part of where the divide is. Like Some, some meals, you, you I like think everyone can agree, are better leftover, but some meals are- Lasagna is great leftover. Right, that, I mean, but, we always make enough that there's going to be quote-unquote leftovers. Uh, even to give another example, like we don't have the problem with leftovers hanging around. If anything, we fight over the leftovers. When when I make pizza, because I make pizza pretty routinely, uh, my wife demands that I make a ridiculous amount of pizza, as in how many pizzas should we make for our family of four? And your guess at how many she wants to make is probably wrong. Oh, it's nice to feel to feel like you're contributing. And the thing is, obviously, we eat whatever we're going to eat. And then we have a huge amount of leftovers that we package up in uh, in two slice packages in foil labeled. Uh, because then when you want to warm them up in the toaster oven, you take your foil package and you sort of you open it up. The microwave. You can't put them in the microwave. No, right? you take your foil package and you open it up. And that foil package is the vessel in which you reheat it in the I toaster oven. I get it. I get it. I get it. Right? I get it. And mm-hmm. that pizza goes fast. Like no one is not, no right. one is leaving that pizza around. Like it, it is gone. Very often we plan to have it for leftovers and it has been devoured before the next night when we're supposed to have it for leftovers because people eat it. Right. Same thing with the Chinese food, Indian Stuff that some people find unappetizing because it sort of congeals or whatever. We don't have that problem in this house. Uh, I we feel love like it. Indian food's different. Well, okay. Well, that's that's a way that we're different. 
the evidence before me, though, is that that doesn't always happen. And then, so, you know, everybody says the same thing that I think is true. I hate wasting food. Everybody says that, partly because they feel they need to say that. Understandable. That's true. Nobody likes wasting food. But the way to not waste food is to plan better. It's not to like force yourself to eat something you don't want to well, eat. You, or have, to, yeah, like, you have to know, Will, does anyone in this house eh, want you? to eat this Because some people though. could just put stuff in there. Like by yeah, the trouble. But, but you have to like put it in there knowing like, don't put it in there mm. expecting other people to eat it. Put it in there because you want to eat it tomorrow. Well, I say it's packaging and planning. And here's what I mean by that. Like, for example, one of the best things I learned in the last year, it should have been obvious as somebody who's had to unlearn a lot of thinking based on sous vide cooking. Sous vide is also a great way to reheat food. I first heard about this, I, I want to say from Andy Anako, who says like, if you heat a burrito, like a frozen burrito in a sous vide, it's just amazing. And what I discovered was like, so for example, when, when I make most uh, of your better cuts of meat, uh, I've, the, 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 the sous vide temperature I found that is right between where I like it and where my family likes it is around 129.5 or 130. Let's just say 130. Um, and now, so for me though, here's the great thing. If there is leftovers, and you know, I made a rib roast the other night, so we did have leftovers. Here's the great thing. I'll slice up whatever's left over, put that into food saver bags, suck that up. And here's the best thing. When you want to reheat that, you throw it in a sous vide for 30 minutes at one degree below whatever you cooked it at. And it's amazing. Of course, in the same way that it cooks evenly, it also reheats evenly. I mean, basically, I mean, there's a rule of thumb in the sous vide community, which is if you're cooking something frozen, if you have put it in a food saver bag, just add a half hour to whatever it is. It's the best. No more of this, this, this monkey-ass defrosting nonsense. The reason I say packaging and, and, and preparation or whatever I said, the other people, I mean, you need to package it in a way that makes the person who's meant to be eating it later want to eat it. So for me, that might be actually like rearranging a plate, like I'm making it for an elderly relative or a child. And, and nicely put saran wrap on it, but also have a plan. Like if I know we're going to be leaving town in a day, we don't do that anymore, but you know what I mean? Just for the sake of argument, if you know you're going to be leaving a town, don't start accumulating leftovers. Like that, that's, that's insane. But if I know I'm going to have like a John Syracuse day at work, I don't mind bringing along a Ziploc bag of meaty rice. That makes a ton of sense. I just think that unless it works for you, which obviously in your house, it does work. Unless it works for you, just throwing, just paying rent to store old food is, is, a, is a miscalculation. But, you know, if, if somebody's going to eat it, that's great. If you made me pizza, I'd eat it. Yeah, the, the, the trip thing is uh, something we usually run into. It's like, say we are planning a trip. Like, we have to consciously think, now remember, we're mm -hmm. going to be leaving the house for a week. 6 a.m. tomorrow, nobody's going to yeah. want pizza at so, 6 a.m. So don't, we can't, like, our normal state of the refrigerator is there's, like, three meals worth of leftovers in there at all times. And if you're about to leave for a week, that doesn't work. And so we have to consciously sort of drain the fridge. Like, just, you know, we have to get down to the bare shelves before we i mean i'm sure everyone has to do that. like you can't leave you know milk in the fridge when you're going away it's, for it's a week. the it's one right. of the very last things the, the 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 last thing on on my list is make sure the cat's not locked in a room <laughs> but right before that it's fine the cat that's the second to last third to the last is all all compost and expirables go out yeah because you don't want to come home to that nope it's the last thing you want. We just started composting, actually. Speaking of, uh, you don't want to waste food or whatever. I was oh, in, in your I, yard. I written no. We have like a composting service. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, wow, great. I, I resisted it for so long because you'd see like it's a service. They give you this tiny, adorable little miniature garbage can. Like it looks like the normal full size garbage cans that you put your garbage and recycling in, but it's like one eighth the size. Oh, that sounds adorable. 
And then someone comes in a different truck and picks them up by hand and dumps them. And anyway, you, you supposed to compost in this thing in these little biodegradable bags and they, they pick it up and they, this, this is the first time we're doing this. So we don't know how it works entirely, but anyway, they pick it up and they cart it away from your house. And then I think at some point during the year, you are entitled to some amount of compost, right? They come oh, back to your like house your and yard. say, yeah, here mm, you go. That's cool. Here's your giant pile of compost. And I'm, that hasn't happened yet. We've only been doing this for several months now, but so I don't know. That's how the tontine works. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know when the person's going to come and give us a pile of smelly dirt. Uh, but when, <laughs> when that happens, I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to do. Like, how much is it going to be? And where, what well, am I well, going to do? You're with back it? to your P's and P's. You need a plan for that. You know, no. it'd be cool, though, if you could do like a Michael, uh, not Michael Shabon. What's the guy? Who's the guy I don't like? The cooking guy. You should be able to do a Michael thing like, a, you know, like you, yeah, I hate that guy. You uh-huh. should, um, yeah, he's really fancy. Um, you know, you, uh, why don't you buy a quarter of a horse or whatever? Like, you <laughs> could, uh, it'd be nice if you could have your own, like, private, like, curated compost. So, you know, it's your eggshells. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's my, you know I mean, it's my, your, uh, all chicken. those Kleenexes you make while you're podcasting, you know, that's all, that's all in there. And now yeah. that's going to be good for your, your rose bush. But, but so far, the only difference is made in my life is now that there, there is a constant, constantly a thing in our kitchen that contains food waste that I'm constantly worried about being stinky, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's kind of fun to separate them. I mean, we have a. a Isn't it a heavier? Gar- Isn't it heavier than you'd expect? Oh yeah, super heavy. Um, and it we makes have you garbage- realize how much over the years, over the fifty-four years I've so far been alive, how much incredibly heavy food waste I've just thrown into a dump. I mean, usually what we're doing with it is putting it in the sink through the uh, you know oh, disposal. You Gar- in the disposal, right? But now the mm-hmm. disposal, the disposal is starving to death. The disposal never gets anything except for like stuff that comes off plates. Oh like no, five, it's like an old cat. We're yeah, like you got five a kitten grains and of rice that you know because yeah. we scrape the actual food into the compost thing. God, that's terrible, John. Did you have a talk before you got the compost? I, I give it an ex- some exercise every once in a while. Every once mm-hmm, in a while, mm-hmm. I let it, I let it have like one little piece of broccoli or something. You know, it just because it needs to, right. it needs to. It's like an old car engine. You need to run it every once in a while. 